Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 566 for the 15th of September 2021. Terence Blanchard is one of jazz's most esteemed trumpeters and defies expectations by creating a spectrum of artistic pursuits. He's a twice Oscar-nominated film composer and a two-time opera composer whose most recent opera, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, opens New York's Metropolitan Opera season on the 27th of September 2021. A month ago, on the 27th of August, Terence released his new album, Absence, on Blue Note Records. It features his synth-inflected band, The E-Collective, and the acclaimed Turtle Island Quartet, and pays homage to the life and music of the great Wayne Shorter. So here's the thing, I'd never met Terence before this interview. I was a fan of his musicianship and his general artistic output, of course. But after this conversation, I was a true admirer. I was so endeared by his warmth, his intelligence, how well-spoken he was, how funny he was, and I appreciated his generosity making time for our conversation in the midst of a very busy opera rehearsal schedule as this premiere date draws closer. So I'm very grateful that he found an empty, quiet rehearsal room at the Met Opera Company where we could have this conversation. Hi. Hey, sorry about that. The Met doesn't want us to chat. No, no, we got a big rehearsal going on, so. Well, I appreciate you taking time in the midst of it to talk to me about both the album and this absolutely fantastic happening. Thank you. No, thank you for doing it. Thank you for covering it. Welcome back to the jazz session because it's been over 10 years and... I know, right? Yeah. You'll either feel like you've accomplished a lot or you'll be really tough on yourself and be like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, what have I been yeah. doing for a decade plus? Well, I'm here to tell you that you've definitely accomplished a lot. Should we just dive right in? Sure. Yes. Okay, amazing. So the first thing we're going to talk about is your fantastic album, Absence, which came out on Blue Note Records mm. uh, towards the end of August on the 27th. And 
the press release talks about how it came about as a tribute to the composer and saxophonist Wayne Shorter. And of course, you cover a lot of Wayne's repertoire in your own way. Uh, But I'd love to hear from you firsthand what Wayne, as a player and a person, has meant to you, both in terms of your music and your life as a musician. Wayne has really defined for me what jazz is supposed to be. I mean, he always says in his interviews, Wayne, uh, he always says that jazz means I dare you. And, you know, we always hear that jazz is an improvisational music and you should be free to do what it is you feel. But within anything in life, there's a certain type of dogma that exists that can stifle creativity where if you're not doing what the other people are doing, then people won't deem you as being a part of the culture or part of the mainstream. And Wayne has never been defined by that. He has helped to define new approaches in that arena. And that's what Wayne really means to me. It's like the epitome of what improvisational music should be. He always says, why not? You know, what a lot of people say, why are you doing that? Why do you do that? Wayne says, why not? You know, and that in itself is a very freeing and liberating thing because then if you learn, if you're learning the history of this music and you're learning your craft, then it's truly about what it is you have to say. You don't have to be beholden to anything because the tradition of what it is that we do is to break tradition, you know, and Wayne has created his own language, his own musical identity, his own sound. And what we're doing with the album is not trying to recreate that in any way. Is one of the reasons why I, I wanted to have some original compositions on the album because that pays more homage to, to Wayne than trying to be Wayne. You know, wh- what we're trying to do is show how he influenced us, you know, uh, uh, how his music has had an impact on what it is we create. Yeah, I love, I could, sorry, I forget that I'm supposed to be interviewing you because I think that you speak so beautifully <laughs> and succinctly, which must be very much in line with why you're such an esteemed jazz educator at UCLA. So I sort of got completely transfixed being like, there's just so much goodness in that. Mm-hmm. And I think probably very in line with Wayne's outlook, given that he's had a huge influence, not just musically, but in terms of how to navigate life as a creative person, not just a musician. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, uh, uh, I remember we did a a documentary about Jim Brown years ago. And Jim Brown said something. He said it would be a shame to go through life without ever finding out what truly turns you on, you know, and... I really think that applies here because I think sometimes fear plays a huge role in, 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 in stifling creativity, you know? So a lot of times as you'll hear guys who come up, who play like Miles Davis, who play like John Coltrane, who play even play like Wayne. And that's because it's easy to be them because we already love them, you know, but when you have to stick your neck out and try to do something that's personal, then you run the risk of rejection. And for some people, unknowingly or some people knowingly that's a huge risk to take you know so it's easier to become someone else but for me what Wayne and Herbie and Miles and Train and Monk and Art Blakey and all of those guys what they've done for me is to make me realize I'm here because there's something burning inside of me that wants to speak and I have to allow that 
to speak the way that it wants to, not try to fit it into something else, you know? And when I listen to Wayne's music, man, I just hear exploration within the, with, and, and here's the wild part about it. I hear it as exploration, but at the same time, there is a, a wealth of knowledge about the fundamentals of composition, you know, and melodic development, harmonic development, you know, but it's done within his language, which is what we all should do. And some of us are afraid to, you know, but Wayne unknowingly has always encouraged me to go down that road. You know, he said something that there was a story he told me years ago about this, this musician, but at the end of the day, the, the, the line that, that blew me away was he said, it takes courage to be happy. And, and, and that's something that's, that's a simple phrase, but it hits at the heart of the matter because some of us think being happy is like following the status quo, you know, whereas we actually may look at it and respect it and say, okay, that's fine, but that's just not me. You know? And some of us are, fearf are fearful of going down that road you know, but that's the road that I always want to go down. It's the unknown road. We don't know what's at the end of it. You know, uh, Dr. Conan West says something that blew me away that I think he said, jazz musicians step out on nothing, expecting something. And that's the way that I've been trying to live my life. You know, I don't want to be anybody else. I don't want to be Wayne. <laughs> you know, truth be told, I don't. But at the same time, I, I just really appreciate what the, the vision that he's given all of us in terms of his creativity, in terms of his awareness about finding himself and just being himself and allowing that to grow. Terrence, what was your trajectory? Because you speak about having a sense of self and a sense of purpose and an idea of learning from the greats, but not falling into the trap of feeling that you need to imitate them. You speak about that with such clarity now, but mm -hmm. I mean, if you look back on your trajectory, you're studying the instrument, the jazz language. Mm -hmm. Have you always had that maturity? Well, I mean, in a sense, I've, I have because of the great teachers that I've had, you know. Um, uh, Ellis Marcellus and Roger Dickerson were people that uh, influenced me from the time that I was about 15, 16 years old, you know. And I remember one of the things Ellis used to say, okay, you can play like Freddie Hubbard, but his records still, are still selling. You know what I mean? So why is somebody going to come and buy yours if you're playing like, they may as well go get the real deal, you know? You don't want the fake Louis Vuitton. You want the real one, you know? Um, so that's always been a part of, of my upbringing musically. My composition teacher, Roger Dickinson, I remember he used to tell me, you know, we used to talk about how sometimes music, certain musics can fall into a rut of like, being similar in terms of just like phrasing. So we were talking about four bar phrases and how those, those things take away excitement because it, it creates monotony because the four bar phrase by it occurring every time, there's no element of surprise, you know? So he used to say four bar phrases are the death knell of creativity. That was, that was the thing that he used to tell me all the time from the time that I was 16 years old. So maybe this has always been a part of me just because of the people that I've encountered in my life. Well, it's nice that you get to pass that on to students that you work with now so that they can hopefully get ahead of 
any of those pitfalls that exist being somebody who creates something. You're always going to compare. You're always going to look up, look back. And you have to yeah, stick to your guns. Something yeah. that struck me about the press release, which is in line with the way that you're speaking, is your sense of collaboration. And you've you've got your group or your band, the E-Collective, on this album. And we should say their names because they're such a big part of the synth-inflected sound of this music. You've got Fabian Almazan on piano, Charles Ochura on guitar, bassist David Ginyard, who I think you call DJ. Yeah, you call him DJ. Is that correct? DJ and drummer Oscar Seaton. And in the press release, I kind of looked at the track listing and, you know, aside from the repertoire by Wayne that you interpret, mm-hmm. second to that, most of the music is written by DJ. Only one tune's written by you. Charles wrote a tune. Fabian did an arrangement. It's incredibly generous in terms of how you're leading a band and how you're helming a record and a document of selection of music at a point in time so can you talk about that desire and trait of your personality to be both generous and nurturing in this regard well you know it goes back to the original intent of putting the band together or being a musician really it's about the music it's not about me you know so uh, and i think some people find that hard to accept. And, and that's where ego always, ego will always create those traps, you know, because your ego will say, oh man, I have to write all of this music. No, you don't. Not if you have competent people around you. And by having those people around you, they help you to grow by playing their music, you know? So for me, this is all a journey, man. It's a, it's a journey that I'm trying to experience and grow from. I'm not trying to control it. You know, because I don't think you can. I'm just trying to experience and expand my consciousness through it. So, you know, when DJ came up with those two tunes, tell me which one I'm going to take off the record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're both they're both beautiful tunes. As a matter of fact, when we did our last record, the live record, we recorded Absence, but we didn't have enough room for it on the CD. We weren't going to do a double CD. So we had to, I told him, I said, bro, I promise you it's going to be on the next record. I promise you. And next thing you know, when we did it, the performance of it was so unique that we thought we'd just make that the title tune. And then for the Envision Reflections, you know, let me just say this, you know, DJ, you know, has been learning about composition, right? And you can hear it and everything that he's written, you know? And I'm trying to be like Art Blakey. Art Blakey was to us. Art Blakey would let us write and prompted us to continue to write and grow, you know? So if me giving DJ a platform helps him grow, so be it, because we're all benefiting. We're all benefiting, you know? It's not just DJ, but I'm learning from playing his music and listening to his writing.
We also should make note that you don't just have E-Collective on this album, but you have the Turtle Island Quartet. You're no stranger to string writing. I'm a fangirl in a few moments about your film scoring work. Uh, and I love that you also had them contribute a couple of instrumental tracks written by their lead violinist, David mm -hmm. Balakrishnan. I hope you said mm -hmm. that right. Um, the tune's called The Second Wave and it's like, it's Americana and you hear it and you're like, oh, this is a delight. It's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did that collaboration come about? Because I suspect you could work with any top-notch string quartet, including Turtle Island. Well, you know, when Fabian was the one who said, he asked me if he could write for a string quartet for the record. And I said, you know what, man, that's a really great idea. And I told my wife, you know, Robin, I told my manager, <laughs> Robin Burgess, about that. And she was the one who said, uh, well, you know, we should use Turtle on a string quartet. And as soon as she said that, I went, wow, that makes so much sense. Uh, and then when we met with those guys and started having rehearsals, man, it was off the chain, you know, because I think when we, I think we were doing the elders and I said, well, look, man, when we get to this section, if you guys want to play and improvise, feel free. <laughs> and they fell right in, you know, it, it, it felt like we had been doing this for a while. I mean, if, if you listen to elders and more elders, when we get to that improvisational part with, with both groups, it's like hand and glove stuff going on. There's nobody stepping on anybody's toes. Everybody's giving other people room to make musical statements. And that has been a joy to experience because it's something new for us. You know, and like I said earlier, life is about expanding. It's not about trying to be the same thing. there a quick note to tell you how you can support the jazz session this podcast is supported by listeners who enjoy these interviews so much that they decide to become members over at the jazz sessions patreon page it's very simple there are two tiers of membership and you can decide which one suits you best five dollars a month will get you a bonus weekly episode called track of the week this is a mini episode where a jazz musician speaks directly to you the listener about a track off their new album and then you'll hear the song played in its entirety ten dollars a month will get you track of the week 
and also a monthly bonus episode, a spin-off series called The Insider, where I interview jazz industry people, broadcasters, journalists, publicists, label heads, etc., etc., about the nuts and bolts of the jazz business. I think that these conversations are both interesting to musicians, certainly, and other people who are contemplating a career in arts administration, for sure, but also to people who are not musicians, because I often think there's nothing more fascinating than a career about which I know nothing. So there you go. You can head to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join to find out how you can become a Patreon member today. Now back to the show. You're in the middle of rehearsing your opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, and it's a big deal. It's your second opera work, but part of its historical pomp and circumstance is that it's the first opera by a black composer that the Met will have performed and it's also opening the upcoming season um, which starts uh, 27th of September. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're really lucky to, to get to chat to you right now at this point in time. I'd love to know, Terence, what is the amount of trepidation or uncertainty that a composer and musician of your caliber experiences when you're wading into a new musical context like opera? And how do you move through that doubt? How terrified are you right now, Terrence? Man, no, well, now I'm fine because, you know, I've experienced it. But the first, when I did the first one, I was, man, we were supposed to premiere 2012 and I wasn't ready. So they pushed it back a year. And I, I kept saying, dude, I don't know if this is for me. You know what I mean? But I again, I've had great people around me. I call Roger Dickinson my composition teacher whenever I have like major things to do. And, you know, he was like, hey, man, stop, don't think about writing an opera. Tell a story. You know, just tell a story. And that calmed me down. And I went ahead and did that. And Champion was a success. But while, while it was a success, I felt there was a lot of growing that I had to do if I were going to do another one. And at the premiere of Champion, that's when they asked me to do another opera right away. Um, and when I started working on Fire, I knew that what I was doing was very different from the operatic world, but there's still things that I wanted to maintain from that world in terms of how transitions happen between scenes, you know, and orchestrations and but I, like, again, it goes back to the Wayne thing. I wanted to do it in my own voice. Um, so mainly the main thing is just like having faith about your, your skills. That's what Rod used to tell me, trust your skills, trust your skills. And, uh, you know, because I was waiting for a concrete answer. You should write it this way. You should do it this. But he said, no, 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 no. I, I didn't get any of that from him. He's like, trust your skills. And, I respect him so much that if he told me that, then he must see something in me that I can't see. And I have to trust him and just go ahead and write. So when it came time to do Fireman, I was much more prepared after having done the first one. And some of the caveats that happened in the first one, I avoided in this one, which mainly is not a big deal. Some of it is just writing for voice errors. You know what I mean? Uh, but having had that experience, I'm, I'm, I was much better suited for this next project. And it's, and I got to tell you, 
it's it's been such a journey at these rehearsals here uh, be, because it's like, you know, I've been operating here in the operatic world and I jump from here to here, you know what I mean? And I don't know how it happened, <laughs> frankly, you know, but I'm here and I'm watching the level of talent that is existing from every angle on this project. And it is miraculous, you know, from the choreography, directing uh, and co-directing by uh, Jim Robinson and Camille Brown, you know, to the, just the vocalists themselves, you know, uh, with Will, uh, Angel and Latonya. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. And then the dancers, man, I just came from doing this scene. It's a long scene with about three or four dance numbers in it. And first of all, just memorizing it, just, I don't know how to do it. I, I just don't, I don't, I can't see it, you know, but it is so artistically beautiful. And I feel like Camille is, her choreography is very much in line with what I do musically. Respect your tradition, but push forward and not stay still. Yeah. Do you enjoy rehearsing? Oh yeah, I love the rehearsing. I love rehearsing because I get, we get it like, for example, I mean, I'm not there now, obviously, but I get a chance to unlock some doors for some of the singers, you know, because, you know, they come to this with this strict notion of how they've done other operas where there's a certain way you sing Wagner, there's a certain way you sing Puccini, and there's a certain way you sing, you know, all of the other French, Italian, and German operas, right? Um, but with this, I'm, a, I'm having them explore themselves, you know, and bring their background to the roles, you know, uh, and it's proven to be a challenge for some just because they're so in the habit of doing the other thing, you know, but I love rehearsing because I'm there to help them. So look, hey man, stop. See that thing you just did? You just did it, but and you may not even realize you did it, but that is the core of what it is that I'm looking for. You know, just being in the moment, you know, allowing your body, allowing your emotions and your voice to say something that you didn't say just at the take before, you know? Yeah. yeah. It must be incredibly terrifying, but also fun and freeing for yeah. them. Oh yeah, man, you, I wish, I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I can't do it because I don't want to be disrespectful, but you do wish you could like take a picture every time you say that to some of them, you know what I mean? They get this look like, I'm like, yeah, go ahead, you know, try it. And, and the wild part about it, um, you know, one of the singers, he sang something at the end of one of the arias just messing around but i'm going that's what i'm talking about that's what i'm talking about and they're like oh i'm like yeah yeah so it's it's been a lot of fun we've been having a great time man you know on this on this production everything must change
How much of a bridge into the opera world has your film scoring work provided? Do you think if you'd never delved into that world, I mean, you've you've been film scoring for decades plus. You've been with Spike, you've worked with him for like 30 years now, since the 1990s. How helpful is that work to this operatic context? The film work is extremely helpful. You know, because first of all, it takes some of the pressure off of doing orchestrations. You know what I mean? So I'm not learning orchestration and voice at the same time. You know what I mean? Uh, so, um, but, that, but the other part of it is because I'm comfortable writing for orchestra, it allows, I don't even know how to put this into words, but it allows me to bring more of my cultural aesthetic to the project if that makes sense, because I'm not so worried about all my voicings for the strings right. Did I write that in the right register? Did, should that is, I'm not worried about any of that. You know, when you get to certain, when you get to a certain level of proficiency with your skills and orchestration, then it really becomes about the story and how do you want to tell it? And those are the main questions that I ask myself when I'm writing and stuff. Yeah, it makes total sense. What are your hopes for this production? I mean, both generally in terms of public reception and everyone at the Met being happy, but also in terms of a sort of personal musical hope. Well, you know, my, my hope for it is that it's going to unlock some doors. And it's not only going to unlock some doors for listeners, because I think that's important and it's happened before, you know, with uh, some of my operas. Um, but I also think it'll open some doors for performers. You know, um, there was, there was, I did an interview a couple of days ago and the journalist asked me, he said, uh, do you think your opera will inspire more people of color to become singers? I'm like, bro, that train has already left the station. And, but, but most people not aren't aware of it. You know, I'm like, there are some brilliant voices out there. You know, and um, I'm proud of the fact that my two operas give them a place to express themselves where they don't have to use the, the Italian vibrato or the French vibrato, you know what I mean? They could use the church vibrato. They could use the R&B background, you know, and, and still sing in full voice, yeah. right? And it, and, and it works amazingly because 
they're projecting in the room. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'm from South Africa and our opera demographic is almost 100% black African singers with the most astonishing oh. natural talent. So it's... um. Oh, nice. They're there. Well, that's the thing, though. And that's, and that's the thing. And, and that's one of the things that I've been saying. You know, they're there and they're not really truly appreciated because what champ, not champion, what, well, champion and fire shut up in my bones. What I think they both do is allow them a platform to sing their musical upbringing in an operatic voice. You know, you know, you come from the church and they want you to sing French stuff. They go, hey, that vibrato, that's, that's, you know, the way you slid up to that note. No, we don't do that in this type of opera, you know? And that has to be very limiting and frustrating at some point for some guys because they spent their entire life inadvertently learning the other thing. That's quite a profound point because really it's not about ushering in more African-American or, or singers of color. It's about getting the repertoire to expand and having people hear your work, your second opera and be like, oh, I didn't think to work that way. And I mean, I assume, I assume the libretto's in English. So again, that also expands things. We move away from operas in foreign tongues. Right, Casey Lemons did the libretto and Casey and myself, we did a bunch of movies together. We actually did this one, Harriet Tubman. Ah. Uh, yeah, we did Harriet Tubman together. Um, but you know, the other thing too, that uh, I hope, I hope that this opera unlocks doors for other people to write opera. You know what I mean? And and I don't mean other black people. I mean everybody. You know what I mean? Because it's interesting, man. You know, Lava Woman is one of my all-time favorite operas. I just love, I just love damn near every note in that thing. But when I hear it, I hear it in context from where it was created. You know what I mean? I don't look at that as being something American. You know, it's great, and it's great music, great writing, great. I, I mean, it's amazing. But does it really speak? Does it really speak to our aesthetic? That's the that's the, that's the big issue, and that's where I think what we're doing is going to hopefully unlock some doors for people to see opera is storytelling. Opera is the highest form of musical theater there is. You know. And when we look at it from that standpoint, then there's so many other things that there, there's so many other stories that could be told. We have to, you know, let go of this dogma about what opera is supposed to be. That's one of the things that kills creativity. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, and I mean, people would have agreed with you. I mean, Jonathan Larson must have, because that's why he made Rent, which is the right. Americanization <laughs> of of La Bohème. So he agreed. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm really excited to um, read reviews and, yeah, see it come to life and see people receive it in real time. Are you still in South Africa now? No, I'm in Toronto. Toronto. So, okay. Near but yeah, far. Well, yeah. well, hopefully it's going to, I think it's going to go to Chicago Lyric Opera. So, you know, you can get a chance to see it there too. Yeah, I would love to. And also, I think you choose your story so nicely. Same thing with Champion. Even if you just read the synopsis of the plot, you're like, and they're based on, you know, this was based on a memoir, right? Yeah. Fire. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Matter, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm, I don't mean to cut you off, but Nikki, no. uh, it's fascinating because I talked to Jim Robinson about that 
the other day. I'm like, dude, can we, if we do another one, can we do some fiction? <laughs> you know, I mean, can you just, I mean, this has been great. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, magical realism is something that could be nice to deal with. Yeah. Well, so. the third one, and, and also Terrence, you can cut me off anytime. Anything you have to yeah. say is far more interesting. <laughs> no, 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 no. Jumping further into the idea of collaboration, which you do all the time in a jazz context and you do it so well, and in such a kind of egalitarian way, when you're collaborating on large scale works like an opera or a film, where you're dealing with a director in both contexts, many more cooks in the kitchen. So what's that like? Oh, it's it's amazing. It's a because the thing that's amazing about it is that when you work with extremely talented people and you give them room, El Elvin Jones, great jazz drummer, we were in Japan at a sushi restaurant after a show one time. And I don't know how he got on the topic, but he said, why would you hire somebody and then try to control them? He said, because what you heard is what made you hire them to begin with. So why have Jim Robinson and Camille Brown co-direct this thing and have Camille's choreography and then tell them, hey, I think it should be like this. You know, we shouldn't do that. No, that is craziness. That's what the collaborative process is about. I didn't have anything to do with writing the libretto. You know, we sit down and talk about the story. You know, well, I talked about that more on Champion than, than Fire. But Casey Lemon is, is an amazing libretto. She put together an amazing story based on her memoirs. Because you got to remember, that stuff is his, mem you know, that, that those are his memoirs. But you have to put this into speaking context. You know, you have to give these characters words, you know. So uh, then the next thing you know, you got to put them in, in a space that makes sense for them. And that's what Jim comes in with the, with the directing, you know, and giving them motivational ideas that help them stay focused throughout the entire run of the series. You can tell because he's, gr he's, he's drilling the stuff into their minds, you know. And then Camille, what can I say about her? How would I, why, how could it make sense for me to sit down and tell Camille how to choreograph these dances? No way. There's no way. I mean, we just watched this one scene, man, with there was about three or four scenes back to back with the dancers, and they were amazing. So here's the thing about it. Not only am I proud to be working with people who are very accomplished in their field, right? The other part of it, you know, is that, like I told you earlier, it helps me to grow. That's really, really what it is. You know, I don't know anything about modern dance. So why would I go in and say, oh, I think the dance numbers are, no, 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 no. Show me what you got. And I may have some input, you know, about some things, but no. So that's the thing that I love about collaboration, you know, is that going back to stepping out on nothing, expecting something concept, you know, and truth be told, when you give people room to create and also give them the motivation, which is the music that allows them to be creative, man, I'm, that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. 
Oh, you must be the best band leader to be in a band with. Uh, yeah. Well, we got to ask those guys. <laughs> well, I have a quote. No, I'm just kidding. I will say it's funny, um, Terrence, that I love that I'm getting an, an elven anecdote from you because I interviewed Dave Liebman a couple of weeks ago. And of course, he had oh, an wow. elven anecdote. And yours is, guys, yeah, your, yours yeah. is, I'm with elven in Japan and we're eating sushi. His was, I'm with elven, we're in Italy, we're drinking Chianti. So the next person, <laughs> it's going to be food. It's going to be in Germany. They're going to be in Germany and they're, and they're eating, oh man, what are Bratwurst or something. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'm waiting go. for it. It's great. Oh, We're uh, tracing Elvin around the globe. I love that. I wanted to ask Terrence about your film scoring work. I'm I'm such a fan. You've worked with Spike Lee on many of his films, including most recently um, *The Five Bloods*, for which you were nominated for an Oscar. So Mazel Tov. Thank you. Belatedly, um, I have a particular soft spot for your theme for *Miracle at Santana*. Oh wow. Oh, I love that. It's just goosebumps. It's so beautiful. And I was such an absolute ardent fan of your recent work on scoring HBO's Perry Mason. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Which was just so fantastic. A lot of fun. I had a lot of fun on that. Well, I can imagine because for folks who haven't watched it or heard the score, Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard a score that was like so classically a jazz score in ages that was seamless in terms of yes it was a jazz score you had that iconic sound of the trumpet but it was also kind of weaving together the fact that this was a very intense period piece like 1930s los angeles and then it also like had the emotional intention that a good film score has thank you thank you has your work in film changed anything about the way you swim in jazz waters Oh, of course, and it definitely has, because the thing about film music is that it's painting a picture. It's helping somebody tell a story, you know, and it's helping to glue together some of these 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 um, uh, characteristics and storylines, you know. Uh, and when it's done successfully, you really don't notice the music. You feel it more to notice it, you know. Uh, and look, how blessed am I to start my career off with a guy like Spike? You know what I mean? I could have, I could have started my career off with Joe Schmo. You know what I mean? And been writing music, you know, I don't know, for 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 ringtones or something, you know, for the rest of my life. But I've been blessed to been working to have worked with Spike for so long, man, because he's a brilliant he's a brilliant guy. Really stretches you creatively because of his cinematic style, you know. Um, and that's just carried over into my jazz career because it, it, I, I try to make a statement with a show. I'm not, I'm not just trying to do a collection of tunes and just have people improvise over them. That doesn't interest me, you know, but it's about having a statement and making a statement. So the last um, uh, record live was all about gun violence, live and breathless. You know, this music on absence, is that's all about Wayne and and just stopping to take a moment to tell Wayne thank you and that we love him, you know, while he's still with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I hope he, has he heard it? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I think he's heard some of it, uh, but this is what we did do. Before we started the session, we took the band over to Wayne's house to hang out with him. And that was magical because a lot of those guys hadn't met Wayne at that point, you know, 
And Wayne is just one of those guys, man. He just, he has an, he has an aura around him that's majestic. And I can't explain him. You have to experience it for yourself. Let me just say this, that the, 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 the hang, I was going to say the meeting, but it wasn't a meeting. The hang with Wayne was so emotional that a few of the guys, when we left, just walked up to me and said, man, thank you. Just thank you. And I went, I got it. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because Wayne is that type of guy, you know, he's, he'll, he has a way of making you contemplate the infinite just by saying hi. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just one of those personalities. And he reminds me of what I used to study about some, some, some yogis where, you know, the, the, the concept for them is to just have a constant existence within this within within the world of of uh tuning into what's going on in the universe you know not just having it be a momentary thing where you sit down and meditate you know they try to they try to operate in that world the whole time and that's where i think wayne is in his life you know i really do he's an amazing person note to the folks who make the jazz session possible, namely the members who support it at Patreon and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music. You can follow the jazz session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Instagram and Facebook at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page where you can see video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. It's really cool, even if I do say so myself. You can rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and that would be awesome. It would make the show more visible to other potential listeners and future patrons. Now, back to the episode. I am often mesmerized by how certain people choose instruments or their instruments choose them and it's a real kind of extension both of their personality and of their physicality even in how they hold their horn or sit at the piano or whatever and I feel in your case like trumpet really is a, it's a it's a part of you it's your instrument that you know you and the trumpet are kind of synonymous in a way why do you love the trumpet well first of all it's, it is a biblical thing you know, I mean, for me, uh, I grew up in the church. My dad grew up, my dad was, loved opera, and he's an M2 baritone <laughs> and had a beautiful voice. And the only reason why I'm laughing was they thought it was going to pass down to my generation, not realizing, new. No, it probably was going to skip me. You know what I mean? They put me in the choir if I think, I don't even think I lasted the entire church service. I, I, I probably was there just for a little bit, and they said, uh... Uh, tell him to go home and get his horn. He he played a horn, right? Yeah, he can praise the Lord by playing his horn. You know, so I I didn't I didn't have that. You know, but um, it's this 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 whole journey, man. 
for doing this has been, I don't even know what, I don't even know how to put it into words. Um, something that I couldn't see coming, you know, something that I would have never wanted to ex uh, experience other than the way that I've done it with Apple Theater St. Louis and these great musicians. And I'm still feeling very blessed to have the talent around me to encourage me to do this. You know, I, I feel very lucky and, and very blessed that it's going the way that it's going. Yeah. And what is up next for you once the opera is kind of out to sea and ticking along? Are you going back to touring the album? Yeah, we're going to be touring the album starting uh, in October. Um, and actually, in, and we're going to have some dates in September, too. I forgot about those. Yeah, we have a few dates in September, uh, but mainly October. We're going to start touring. And then there may be another opera on the horizon. You know, there's a couple of film projects that I'm also, you know, up for, you know, but uh, let's see. And there may be a musical in the works. So. And do you enjoy the film work in terms of it's much more solitary up front, at least, than some of the other stuff. Yeah. Do you enjoy kind of getting to go into that place, the mindset? When the film is good. <laughs> yes. Which I've been very blessed. Most of the films, 99.9% .9 of the films I worked on have been really great things to work on. And, you know, that's just a little inside joke with some, you know, composer friends of mine. <laughs> You know, there's one, there's one producer, man, uh, he said he was working on this project and it was called, you know, From Hell. I think it was either called Hell or From Hell, right? And whenever his buddies would call him up and say, hey, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm working on this movie, From Hell. And they go, man, I know I got one too. <laughs> oh, oh man. You gotta, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Do you turn down requests to score yeah i have i mean as, as especially in the beginning part of my career you know there were certain types of movies that were brought to me because i was african-american and huh. no disrespect to the movies but i didn't want to be known as the black composer you know um so i turned there's about 11 scripts at the initial at the initial part of my career in the film world i just said no to you know and it cost me because you know People thought of me a certain way, but there's no disrespect to those films, but I didn't want the industry to look at me and say, oh, he gonna, we should get him to write this. You know, no, I'm a, I'm a composer. I want to work just like anybody else works, you know? Um, yeah, so therein lies my experience in this business, everything we've talked about, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, you know, what's interesting about this, and I have to say this, at the end of the day, one of the things I wish students really understand, it's a journey, it's not a race, you know? And for some people, things happen overnight, you know? For others, you have to work and you have to maintain a level of focus on what's important to you, you know? And I've been blessed to have people around me, like I told you earlier, that help keep me focused on those things, you know? And as a result, I've had a really wide and very career doing a lot of different things that I love, you know, and grown from all of them and become 
a bigger and better person as a result. Well, I think your decisions have served you well. And, you know, talking to you on the eve of the debut of the second opera. So I wish you all the best for it. I can't wait to read all the reactions, which I know will be fantastic. Thank you, Nikki. I'm excited for people to, to see it because I think that there's some things in this that will help redefine what we think about opera. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, especially after speaking to you today. And I'm sure the incubation period is so long that that sense of go forth. Well, is... you know, the, the, the incubation nice. period is long, but there's a reason why it's long. You know what I mean? Because as the singers become more comfortable, as the dancers become more comfortable, things starting to broaden out. You know, it's literally like a rose. You know what I mean? It's when it, when the petals start to open, it just look out, man. I'm telling you, just watching those guys in that scene just before I came here, you know, it's it's been hilarious. You know, something amazing will happen and people will turn around to me and go, so what do you think? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? You really want to really? No. Only worry about when I stand up and start screaming. You know, other than that, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. You're just loving it. Oh, it's so great, Terrence. Thank you so much for coming on, on the show today. I, I so appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, I appreciate No, really. Yeah. Awesome. Lovely to meet you. Same here. Same here. So maybe I'll see you sometime in Toronto or someplace. Yeah. Let us know. All right. Take care. so much to this week's guest Terence Blanchard. His new album Absence is out on Blue Note Records now wherever you buy your music and his second opera Fire Shut Up In My Bones will open New York's Metropolitan Opera season on the 27th of September. If you're in New York you know what to do. If you enjoyed this episode then you can rate and review the podcast or just tell a friend and family member about exactly how much joy it sparked. For more information about membership, you can head to thejazzsession.com join and become a Patreon member today. Do join me next week for another conversation about jazz and life on The Jazz Session. <laughs>